You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. The story is told of a couple who had always dreamed of a vacation in Paris. They had saved and planned, clipped travel articles, made a file of special destinations, the Louvre, Versailles, Notre Dame. They had a list of restaurants they wanted to go to, even if they could only afford to have a glass of wine there. And finally, it seemed that it was going to happen. As they started to make reservations, the costs began to mount up, so they scoured the internet and eventually found an amazing deal on the airfare. It was a flight out of Buffalo, but that was an easy drive, so they checked their passports, packed their bags, and took off. Once in the air, they began to be a bit more aware of their surroundings and noticed a high proportion of their fellow travelers were wearing Stetsons and talking with a southern drawl. Maybe the Cattlemen's Convention was being held in Paris this year. Finally, they landed, but were disoriented when they noticed the Customs and Immigration Hall festooned with U.S. flags and a picture of the then-American president on the wall. They were in Paris... Paris, Texas. They had been so longing for France and so delighted to find a $79 flight that they didn't bother to check their assumptions about which Paris it was. I wonder if that's how the disciples felt after the crucifixion. They had been longing for the coming of the kingdom, but they, the Twelve, weren't Torah scholars nor were they mystics like Simeon or Anna the prophetess, who might have had a better sense of the coming kingdom of the Prince of Peace. To these fishermen and laborers, a new kingdom meant a political messiah who would remove the Romans and establish a Jewish king in Jerusalem. And of course, they had hoped that Jesus would be that king. After all, he didn't talk about much else besides his kingdom. But they were so enthusiastic at the prospect that they didn't check their assumptions about what kind of a kingdom it was going to be. And their thwarted expectations took them to very different places. Peter, at one point, declared that he was going back fishing. Judas, as we know, came to a deeply tragic end. Today we'll look at a disciple who's Deep disappointment left him with the determination to never be disappointed again, to never again take the risk of believing. Here's how John tells the story in his biography of Jesus. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Although the doors had been shut, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Place your finger here and see my hands and place your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. It's interesting that this disciple has come to be known as Doubting Thomas, because he actually didn't doubt. He seems to have completely abandoned faith. He wanted hard evidence or nothing. His wasn't doubt, but rather refusal to believe. Doubt can actually be a helpful state. It can be a humbling cure to the sin of certainty that some of us are prone to. It can open new perspectives and ways of understanding our path of walking with Jesus. It's not a rejection of faith, but an uncertainty. Uncertainty, for instance, about how my present circumstances can be consistent with a loving God. Doubt is a place of tension, precisely because it tries to hang on to faith. But that's not where Thomas was at. Thomas was the epitome of once bitten, twice shy. He had set his hopes in faith that Jesus would be a political messiah. But when those hopes were dashed on that terrible Friday, he felt his commitment to Jesus had been betrayed. Like our travelers, he found out that he had ended up not in the immortal city of light, Paris, France, but in dull backwater Paris, Texas. He wasn't interested in being fooled again, so going forward he was determined to have hard proof on which to base his decisions. If the Jesus who died on that cross was indeed alive again, as some claimed, he wanted to put his finger in the nail holes in his hands. To this disappointed, hard-bitten disciple, Jesus lovingly comes and speaks peace. He clearly knows exactly what Thomas is thinking, what kind of proof he is looking for, and he invites him to find the evidence he wants in his wounded hands and side. Then Jesus encourages him to move forward. He says to him, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The word for believing here is the Greek word pistos, meaning having faith, trust, reliance, dependence. Jesus says Thomas needs to have not a pistis, but pistis. Think of it like the difference between amoral and moral. When we describe someone as moral, we are saying they have an ethical framework and strive to live within it. But when someone but someone who is amoral doesn't even have the framework, they wouldn't recognize integrity if they tripped over it on the sidewalk. So similarly with apistis and pistis. Jesus is acknowledging that Thomas at this point isn't willing to put any trust or reliance in the stories he has heard of the resurrection. He is faithless, unwilling to take the risk inherent in trusting. He will no longer rely on the promises and words of others, but only on what he can see and feel with his own eyes and hands. Now, happily for him, that was only a temporary state. When he recognizes the risen Christ, he worships him as his Lord and God. But his time spent in unbelief is important for us to look at. During Jesus' public ministry, he from time to time challenged his followers about their lack of faith. It's easy for us to think of faith as a noun, a thing that we have or don't have, a thing that can be described in creeds or formulas, depending on the church background you come from, 
But when Jesus challenged his followers for their lack of faith, it wasn't because they had forgotten the second section of the Apostles' Creed. You see, it seems that for Jesus, faith was less a noun and more a verb. It was trust, putting your trust in God. So we read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus telling the disciples to look at the wildflowers on the hillside that God clothes which, with such beauty. And will he not do so much more for you, you of little faith? Here, lack of faith was not a failure of orthodox doctrine, but a reluctance to trust God to provide for them. When the disciples run into a stormy crossing on the Sea of Galilee and finally wake up the seemingly oblivious Jesus from his nap in the stern, he says, Why are you fearful, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Their lack of faith wasn't an inability to articulate the plan of salvation. It was their fear, fear that God couldn't or wouldn't save them. I think those episodes show us something really important about the roots of unbelief, of Thomas's epistos. Unbelief usually doesn't come because I have problems with the doctrine of the Trinity, or I am uncertain in my eschatology. It comes because, because I am afraid. Afraid that I won't have food or clothing, even though the birds and the lilies do. Afraid that I will die in a storm, even though Jesus is right in my boat with me. Afraid that I've been a fool to follow a would-be Messiah who came to a tragic end. Once we have been disappointed, the fear of that happening again can make it hard for us to believe. Unbelief, epistos, can feel like an attractive option. But I think there's another layer here. It isn't just the presence or absence or even the quantity of faith. I remember a friend many years ago telling me that he used to think that having great faith when praying meant squeezing his eyes so tight that he saw little white dots. The point, it seemed, was the quantity of faith we had, or at least the quantity we could convince God that we had based on our tightly shut eyelids. But maybe the point is not just whether we are trusting God or how much we are trusting God, but what we are trusting God for. One of the tragic developments over the last 30 or 40 years in Western evangelicalism has been the emergence of what's been called the prosperity gospel. The sales pitch, and I use that term intentionally, that we should come to Jesus because he will make us healthy, wealthy, and happy. I describe it as tragic not because I don't think people should come to Jesus, but because the claims involve the worst sort of deceptive advertising. It's as though they are showing travel brochures for Paris, France, to entice people onto a plane heading to Paris, Texas. For Thomas, the disappointment was that he thought he had been offered a political kingdom, but instead Jesus launched the kingdom of heaven. For us, the dis disappointment may not be political, but that our prayers have not been answered, that we, we haven't been given health, wealth, and happiness like we thought we had been promised. Yet as far as I read the words of Jesus and his followers, that never was the promise. Remember that Jesus invites his followers to take up their cross and follow him. 
He warns them that the world will hate them. Paul offers an important reminder that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, but it's good that he does because he goes on to point out that we'll face tribulation, distress, persecution, hunger, and enemy swords. James calls on young believers to count it all joy when tests and challenges come at them from all sides. Peter tells his readers, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is coming upon you to test you as though this were some strange thing that was happening to you. Of course, those same writers offer the wonderful truth that Jesus will be with us in those sufferings and that he will bring growth and healing and hope out of them. But on the way, our path to Paris, Texas may lead us on a hard and painful journey. If we are heading forward on that path, thinking it leads to Paris, France, to a happy marriage, a successful career, financial stability, family harmony, to health, wealth, and happiness, we may find it hard to believe, especially when those things don't occur. One thing I do appreciate about Thomas is that he is at least really honest about where he's at. He's not cloaking his unbelief in religious lingo. He's facing it straight on. Sadly, in a lot of our contemporary churches, we've been trained better than that. When Joe is facing major heart surgery, his wife gets the prayer chain going, and when he has a positive outcome, everyone rejoices that God is good. But what if Joe has a terrible complication and ends up on life support in an ICU? Is God not good then? His wife will have been trained not to share that story because it doesn't reinforce faith. I have a friend whose son had cancer as a child. When he was first diagnosed, the church rallied round and brought casseroles and held prayer meetings. But when his course became complicated, when the suffering limped on over months, the support melted away. Eventually, my friend said she felt the congregation had become annoyed with her because she had not produced the miracle they were praying for. When the suffering that the writers of the New Testament promised us comes to us, we may try to blanket out of our memory banks so our faith is not weakened. And when the next challenge comes along, we try to pull out a faith that is sure God will bless us with a good outcome. We close our eyes tightly keep the door shut on difficult memories and try to conjure up confidence that things will go well this time. That's not what Thomas did. He said, I've been deeply disappointed. I've been burned by that disappointment, and right now I'm not ready to trust again. He was afraid he might end up back in Paris, Texas, and that fear overwhelmed his faith. I like his honesty. Another thing I like about him is that he continued to hang around. He may have missed that first dinner where Jesus showed up, but he was there a week later, and he was among those who went fishing with Peter. And the community of disciples made room for him. We have no record that they scolded him for his unbelief, but they did have him over for dinner and invite him to go fishing. I don't have a neat ribbon to tie around all of this. I'm just going to close with a favorite quote from Frederick Buchner. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. <laughs>